fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to the program. It is Tuesday, December the 5th, 2023, and I don't want you to plead the 5th, even though it's the 5th. I want you to call me. I want you to talk to me. And here is the phone number to do just that. 1-888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. That is our listener line for the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. So I want you to use that, take advantage of that. And you can also, by the way, email the program. It's always good to hear from you. And you can send me show ideas, questions, comments. And the email address is klcale at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E is my handle, at Kale Clark. And we're going to talk about, maybe you saw this on Twitter, the Star of Bethlehem. Is it history or is it mystery? Now we're into the first week of Advent and maybe I'm jumping the gun just a little bit, just a little bit. I can't help myself though. We're getting close to Christmas. A really interesting piece came out on the Star of Bethlehem and I just had to talk about it. Is there any evidence for the Star of Bethlehem? And what does it really mean, by the way, from a theological perspective? Is there is there anything in play here that we maybe haven't considered? There actually is. And I'm going to tell you about an, an interpretation of the Star of Bethlehem that was super popular in the early church, but it was actually outlawed later on. It was deemed a heresy, a false teaching by one of the councils of the church. So we'll get into that little mystery in just a second. Actually, this, this article was sent to me by, hey, joining the ranks of the shadow producers, Father Charles Nam. Father Charles Nam is a, is a wonderful priest. In fact, he actually... Um, celebrated the wedding mass uh, for me and Trish. Really interesting dude. He used to be a dentist in a former life. Uh, in fact, uh, now that he's a priest, he's, he's not doing that anymore. Um, he's, he's a priest of 100%. But I, I did ask him at one point, hey, listen, man, I don't have dental insurance. Could you just like kind of work on me out of the back of your trunk? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. I don't, ha- I don't have the gear anymore. <laughs> I got rid of it. But uh, no, no, no. I would, the liability is just too much. I'm not going to do that. But a really interesting guy. Former... Jehovah's Witness. He actually got involved in the Witnesses before discovering the Catholic Church, and now he's a Catholic priest. He was ordained by John Paul II in Rome. Really interesting guy. And Father Charles sent me this 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 piece on the Star of Bethlehem. I had not seen this, but I'm so glad that he did. I want to remind you also, you can become a shadow producer by sending me an email, a link to a story. You think I might want to talk about faith, facts, and fun? You know that's the name of the game here on the Kale Clark Show. You can send me an email once again at kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. So anyways, this this piece um, was written by the great Professor Donald DeMarco. I don't know if you know Professor Donald DeMarco. You might have heard of some of his books. He, I, I've always loved uh, his writings, and he's a, he's a professor emeritus at St. Jerome's University in Waterloo, Canada. But he's also the author of books such as The Twelve Supporting Pillars of the Culture of Life and Why They Are Crumbling, He also wrote a book many years ago called Architects of the Culture of Death, in which he kind of lays out the background of all the characters who, with their ideas, and ideas matter, they really do matter, and they do filter down, uh, (laughs) even if they're up in academic ivory towers, just like the snow-capped mountains, eventually they trickle down to the valley below, watering the valley, and it needs to be a pure stream or else, but... uh, 
every, every people in the academic world, characters like Margaret Sanger, who was of course the uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and all of her uh, evil ideas that helped to contribute to the culture of death. Architects of the Culture of Death, great book by Dr. Donald DeMarco. But that's not what this is about. This this particular piece that, that he published on the Catholic Exchange website was called The Star of Bethlehem, History or Mystery. And he, and he starts off by talking about the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. Or Kant. And he just can't, I, I just can't pronounce this. Um, and my wife Trish reminded me that there is a philosopher's drinking song that uh, talks about Kant. Uh, but I'm not going to sing that song. Maybe, maybe one of the callers might, you guys might want to do this, 888-914-9149. I don't know if it's clean or not. Hopefully it is. But maybe you sang that in university. I don't know. I don't know, the philosopher's drinking song. But anyways, Immanuel Kant. It's interesting because his first name is Immanuel, which of course means God with us. Immanuel, yes. Oh, come, oh, come, Immanuel. One of my favorite Advent hymns. Anyways. Immanuel Kant remarked that there are actually two things that used to fascinate him. Number one, the moral law within each person and the starry skies above. So those are the two things that used to fascinate him. We, we all have kind of a universe within, don't we? There's a moral law within and then there's a universe without. There's the, there's the starry skies above. And, and that that is super intriguing to me because... This this idea of, of what governs the moral law, that's the field of ethics. And, of course, the study of the skies, the stars, the planets, astronomy. But Donald DeMarco says that the knowledge that we have gained by these two pursuits leaves much to be understood. They begin solidly planted in reason, he writes, but very soon they enter the domain of mystery. How does it come about? that order can be inscribed in two such widely disparate areas. Perhaps it is true that God is everywhere, and yet he himself remains a mystery. And I, I like how he how he sort of starts off with this idea of ethics and the starry skies, the universe within and the universe without, if you will. Because in our Roman series, we're, we're, I just have really been enjoying this, and hope you, hopefully you have as well on the Faith Explained program. Uh, these days, we've been going through St. Paul's letter to the Romans. So you can hop in, by the way, in this series at any point. If you've missed it all up to this point, that's fine. Because the way I set it up is that each uh, episode stands alone on its own. You'll be able to understand the conversation. But it's also good to look at the whole series. And we've archived all the episodes on uh, RelevantRadio.com and on the Faith Explained uh, section of the Relevant Radio app. And we, of course, put our shows out as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere. We want to really bring Christ to the world through the media using all means possible. But in our series on Romans, St. Paul just does just a masterful job talking about how God has revealed himself in, in a couple of different ways. He says this in the beginning of the book, through natural law, natural revelation, and also, of course, through supernatural revelations. And he's revealed himself to Jews and pagans alike in the Old Covenant time. Now, the Jews, of course, had the advantage of having the revealed law of God and the natural law. The pagans, though, they're not without, they don't have any excuse because they also have been given the natural law. And through their conscience, as Cardinal Newman called the conscience, the aboriginal vicar of Christ, the conscience communicates the truth of God to each person. 
the message from eternity to every person. Now, of course, consciences can be blunted. They can be poorly formed, malinformed, misinformed. But it's it's there. And in fact, the message that you're getting in your conscience about right and wrong is exactly the same content as the Ten Commandments. That's what the Catechism teaches. That's what the Church teaches. So God, God is one. God, God's message is very consistent. And the message he gives people through natural revelation is not at all in conflict with supernatural revelation made expressive and made very clear through the Ten Commandments and, and all the other stuff that God has done to reveal himself throughout human history. But that's that's what's so interesting to me about this this concept of of ethics, and then and then the the universe within. But then, of course, there are the starry skies above and astronomy, and, and this is really where the star of Bethlehem comes into play. We're going to hear a lot about this, of course, in the coming weeks. People are going to be questioning. You're going to be probably seeing a lot of programs, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of stuff in media, a lot of articles, a lot of tweets, a lot of posts questioning the historicity of the Christmas account. I've dealt with that many times in the past. We'll deal with it again. The reality of the existence of Jesus Christ. He was a real historical person. He clearly had to have been born if he was in history, and historians wrote about him, even outside the Bible. But some people think that in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, they say, yeah, I just don't buy the Christmas narrative. I, I think it's I think it's fanciful. I don't think things really happen that way. It doesn't seem plausible to me. Uh, some people think it's just a big theological invented story. And even, even some very, very famous Catholic scholars used to think that. Not so fast. Not so fast. Let, let's look at the evidence. Let's just talk about this one thing today, the Star of Bethlehem. Let's go back to what Donald DeMarco says in his little piece here. And, and by the way, I'm going to send this to Producer Jim. It'll be in the show notes for today's episode. So we will we'll check that out. But here's what Dr. Donald DeMarco says about uh, Matthew chapter 1. He says, quote, The most fascinating story concerning the starry skies is the account we find in Matthew chapter 1 about the Magi, who followed a star that led them to Bethlehem and to the newborn babe, the king of the Jews. Was this story, which has been enjoyed and celebrated for more than 2,000 Christmases throughout the world, a historical event or... Is it a mystery that belongs to the world of myth? Has it been in any way corroborated by astronomers who laid their claims on the basis of pure science? And who would these astronomers be? Okay, so this is, this is a very good question. This is a very good thing that we, that we should be listening to here because it, there will be doubters. You can bet your bottom dollar on that one. So let's talk about this. So he mentions Frederick Weisler. And uh, Frederick Weiss lived from 1811 to 1892. He was a classical archaeologist and philologist. A philologist. A philologist. I can't even say it. A philologist at the University of Göttingen. Now, Frederick Weisler appears to, to have discovered a reference in Chinese chronological tables that in the year 4 BC, a bright star appeared and was visible for quite a long time. Have you ever heard about this before? This is this is pretty amazing. So Weisler uh, in Göttingen uh, in the 19th century was looking through some Chinese chronological tables, and in the year 4 BC, according to their records, a bright star appeared and was visible for quite a long time. What about Johannes Kepler? 
Johannes Kepler, who lived from 1571 to 1630. Okay, so um, late 16th, early 17th century. We've all heard of Kepler. And he, he calculated that around the year 7 BC to 6 BC, which is around the time when Jesus was born, and, and I know people kind of get their knickers in a knot when they, when they hear that. Wait, no, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't born until the year zero, right? Zero AD, right? How could he be born in the before Christ period? How could Christ be before Christ? Well, the answer is uh, the monks that made up our, our modern calendars kind of were off a little bit on the dates. Don't Don't forget that Herod the Great, and this is one of the great uh, historical questions, too, about, about the infancy narratives of Jesus in the Gospels. Herod the Great, who was obviously a historical person, as was Jesus, the slaughter of the innocents. We, we of course, celebrate them during the, the time between Christmas and, and New Year's, and Christmas and, and the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, on January the 1st. The slaughter of the holy innocents. He's trying to take out the infant Christ. We know that Herod died in 4 B.C., so if he tried to kill Jesus, Jesus obviously was born before that. So this makes sense that Jesus might have been born somewhere around 6, 7, you know, 5, 6, 7 BC around. So at this time, according to Kepler, there was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. And, and when those planets kind of came together in the heavens around the time of the nativity, it would have number one, been accompanied by a supernova explosion. That's pretty cool. And, and, and these two planets together, or these three planets together, rather, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, would, it, would have seemed like an extremely bright star in the sky because they're kind of all together, jumbled together. It would, have, it would have been quite an appearance. And he said that it really would have appeared like a bright star over Bethlehem. Well, and he's not the only one. These two are not the only one. Weisler... Kepler. There's also the Viennese astronomer, Conradin Ferrari Docepo. Docepo. Uh, Docepo. Now, he lived from 1907 to 2017, so he just passed away a few years ago, from Vienna. He pointed out that astronomers in Babylon, they could have calculated the, the, the planetary conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn around, again, 7 BC, 6 BC, around that time, in the constellation of Pisces. So, Docepio himself, he, he actually said that the star of Bethlehem was brought about by the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And uh, th these are his words. So, this is the Viennese astronomer Conradin Ferrari Docepio. I think I've pronounced his name three different ways already. But anyways, that's the dude. And, 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 and this is... um. This is taken from his work, Der Stern von Bethlehem, which I'm assuming means the Star of Bethlehem. My German is non-existent, but I'm good at guessing things like this. Uh, he wrote, quote, Jupiter, the star of the highest Babylonian deity, entered its brightest phase when it rose in the evening alongside Saturn, the cosmic representative of the Jewish people, end of quote. I've never actually heard that before, that, that Saturn is the cosmic representative of the Jewish people. I'll have, to, I'll have to do some research on that. So this conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, maybe Mars as well, as, as that other scholar suggested too, around the year 7 to 9 BC, that's now regarded by most astronomers as a scientific historical fact. So this is actual history 
interplanetary history. It's interstellar history, if you will. It's not only mystery. It's not myth. The Magi were probably astronomers. They they were very, very familiar with, with the Old Covenant. And we can talk about this later, maybe during the Christmas season, leading up to the Epiphany, of course. It's a normal time we talk about the Magi. But they, there's a big debate about whether or not the Magi were pagans or Jewish, whether they, whether they were somehow part of the diaspora. And, but they seem to have known the Old Testament somehow, or maybe were tipped off by Jews that they were in contact with. What could this possibly mean? And we're going to tell you in just a second where in the Old Testament there is a prophecy about a star, because a lot of people don't know where this comes from. But the Magi certainly would have had good reasons when, when this dazzling display appeared in the heavens. This means something. This means something. And Donald DeMarco says this. He says, look, the science of astronomy can only go so far because the story of the Magi, if, you, if you're going to really finish this off, it has to include something drawn from theology, the science of God, tradition, sacred tradition, that is, sacred scripture, human psychology even. At any rate, we know about this from a historical perspective, from a from an interplanetary perspective, to find the words of St. Matthew entirely credible. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. End of quote. That's obviously from Matthew. And so, DeMarco kind of concludes by saying, hey, we should be able to really take some confidence in this, that the star of Bethlehem is, is belonging to both history, as the astronomers have attested, and also to mystery. Because when we talk about, he doesn't get into this, but when we talk about the concept of mystery in the Catholic Church, gift and mystery, uh, that was one of the writings of JP too, mystery does not mean an unsolvable puddle or a whodunit, something like an Agatha Christie novel or Sherlock Holmes or Father Brown mysteries from Chesterton, if you prefer. A mystery is a truth that's so deep that we, we can know that it's true because God has revealed it, but we'll never get to the, to the bottom of it. Like the Trinity, the reality of God being a Trinity of persons. No human mind can fully comprehend the Trinity, but we can still know that it's true. And if anybody has said that they've mastered the Trinity, they completely understand it. That, that, that person is a heretic, according to the church. Uh, that's why Trinity Sunday can be very tricky for preachers, because it's very easy to slip into heresy when talking about the Trinity. However, you've got to be careful, but we do know that it's true. And with the Christmas star as well, the star of Bethlehem, we can also be very confident when we're putting up our Christmas trees. And we, we, we talked about this before, how early is too early. Whether you've done it already, I'm not going to tell anybody if you have. The purists would say, wait till Christmas. <laughs> it is actually here. But when you, whenever you decide to set up your, your tree and you put that star atop that tree, you can rejoice, along with the Magi, that Christmas is a reality and the star was a reality as well. And it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So just another reason to be glad and to be joyful in this Advent season leading up, of course, to the celebration of Christmas. So going to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show, but we will be right back. Love to hear your phone calls. 888-914-9149. Be right back.
This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the program. 888-914-9149 is the number to call toll-free to talk to me on the show. Hey, just before the break, we were talking about the Star of Bethlehem, new article that just came out. Is it history or mystery? We talked about some of the, the good reasons to believe it was astrological, interstellar history, conjunction of planets. Lots of famous astronomers and astrologers have checked into this. Um, but I, I promised I would tell you a little bit about what the Magi might have actually been thinking about, what, what scripture passage. And again, the, the debate is open as to whether or not they themselves were Jewish or not. But at any rate, there was probably an Old Testament prophecy that they had in mind when they saw the star. I'll get into that. Plus, how it was interpreted in the early church is kind of fascinating. Eventually, there, there, was a, there was one view that was squashed as heresy eventually, but it's intriguing. I'll share that with you right now. So essentially, when in Matthew's Gospel... Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, when it talks about the, the Magi seeing the star at its rising, very there were lots of occasions in history where the, where the birth of very significant figures was augured by a star. It was said that a, a famous star appeared at the birth of Alexander the Great, same for Julius Caesar, many others throughout history. But this star concerning Jesus was far greater than any of these, of course, really has to do with an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Numbers. This is a very famous prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the borderlands of Moab and the territory of all the Shethites. I have to be careful how I say that. <laughs> uh, so th- this is the famous prophecy of the scepter and the star. The star coming out of Jacob and a scepter. A scepter having to do with a, a king, right? A ruling scepter coming out of Israel. Now what's interesting in that, in the synagogues during the time, around the time when Jesus was born, in the synagogues they had, they had a paraphrase of this Old Testament, not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic, which is kind of the street language that Jesus and his friends used to speak. Now, in the Aramaic paraphrase that was really popular in the synagogues, it's changed a little bit. It's very messianic. It's explicitly messianic. Here's what it says in Aramaic. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. When the strong king from those of the house of Jacob shall rule, and the Messiah and the strong rod from Israel shall be anointed. So this is very messianic. It really kind of harkens back to Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. The Christians used to pick up on this. Uh, the anointed king with a rod to rule the nations. Uh, it shows up in scripture, shows up in the early church all over the place. By the way, um, you might have heard of the great war against Rome that happened from 66 to 70 AD. There were lots of little skirmishes and wars that broke out where the Jewish people tried to rise up against their Roman overlords and in, this, in the Jewish war from um, 66 to 70 AD that, that really ended with the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the burning of the temple at a, bla- a blazing inferno, uh, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, talks about this, and he says that this very verse, Numbers 24, 17, that, that's what incited uh, his countrymen to revolt against Roman authority. Why did, it, why, why did this happen? Well, because at the time, 
there was a comet that passed through, and it, and, and it was seen in Jerusalem, and, and it looked, for some reason, the comet looked like a sword in the heavens as it was traveling through. And everybody sort of saw this, and they said, aha, this is the star of Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob. Okay, this, this is a sign that we need to go to war here. So this this is but I think really the true fulfillment of course was the star of Bethlehem no question about it we talked about uh, some of the planetary alignments like Jupiter and Saturn maybe Mars as well thrown in there in 7 BC creating what would have looked on earth like a star of great brightness uh, also closer to that time too Venus and Saturn also has been suggested uh, in 3 BC those two planets kind of came together there's been a few different uh, configurations like that but uh, here's the and by the way here's the interpretation of the star that was outlawed eventually by the church, but it was really popular um, in the early centuries. There's a writer named Tatian uh, who talked about in the second century. He said, "There's a spirit in the stars, a spirit in angels, a spirit in humans, a spirit in animals." What, what was he talking about? He was essentially suggesting that the stars of the heavens were actually living beings with their own spirit or soul. There's a very uh, famous uh, Jewish philosopher um, named Philo. You might have heard of Philo of Alexandria. He was kind of roughly contemporaneous with St. Paul. And he said this in the first century. He said, the stars are living creatures. The stars are souls divine. The heavenly bodies are living creatures endowed with mind. So, so this was a very, very common uh, idea. And here, here's something else. Now, this is, a, again, this is not in the Bible or anything like this, but I just, I just mentioned these because this was kind of the mindset of people at the time. There's something called the magical papyri. And in the magical papyri, it says, a star will descend and come to a stop in the middle of the housetop. Now, that's kind of interesting because the star of Bethlehem, of course, did seem to kind of stop over the place where the child was, along, of course, with his mother, and presumably St. Joseph as well. And it says in the Magical Papyri, a star will descend and come to a stop in the middle of the housetop, and when the star has dissolved before your eyes, you will behold an angel whom you have summoned and who has been sent. So it's very interesting. So another idea that was out there, sort of floating in the ether, was that the stars were actually angels. Think about the brightness of the stars, angels appearing in bright light, that sort of thing. Uh, there's another, again, this is not in the Bible. This is a Christian document from the early centuries called the Arabic, it's in Arabic, it's the Arabic Gospel of the Savior. And this, and that's, this document says, they appear, there appeared to the Magi an angel in the form of a star which had guided them on their journey, and they went away following the guidance of its light. Uh, Another writer says, When you hear the word star, do not think that it was a star such as we see, but rather a divine and angelic power that appeared in the form of a star. The star was an angelic power. So this this is kind of out there in the air. Now, this, this, this interpretation, you don't hear this at all today because... In uh, the year 553 A.D., the Second Council of Constantinople actually said, look, if you believe that the sun and the moon and the stars are living beings, it's heresy, it's false teaching. So they kind of dropped the hammer on that. So nobody really thought about that 
uh, you know, really for the most part um, in church history going forward, nobody really kind of brought that idea up. I, I just simply bring that. I'm not saying that that was the case. I'm not saying that the star was an angel at all. I don't think so. But but I, I just bring that up just for historical interest's sake. Um, just because I thought you'd find it interesting. I, I certainly found it interesting. But um, again, the Second Council of Constantinople, always got to go with the church, right? Church councils, the Holy Spirit never steers us wrong with the magisterium of the church. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. So glad you're with me. 888 All right, let's go to Paul in Youngstown, Ohio. Our good friend Paul. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, Kale. I just wondered, uh, this year would you be topping your tree with a star or an angel? <laughs> well, we have this, like, we kind of inherited all these decorations when we got married, and I just, I don't know, we, so the, the star on the top of our tree, it, it's, it might seem kind of corny, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poinsettia in the form of a star, so it's a star, but it's got a poinsettia in it, I don't know, it looks kind of cool, it's red, when it gets lit up, it's kind of cool, how about you, Paul, you're an angel guy or a star guy? Well, I have both, and I've used both in the past, but now I notice a disturbing trend on some Christmas trees, they just put a ribbon at the top. And I thought, that's people trying to celebrate Christmas, but just the gift-giving of Christmas. Oh, maybe. They're trying to yeah. avoid any images. Significant. Hard to do that. It's hard to avoid that. You know, Christmas means Christ Mass, after all. And the, the word holiday actually means holy day. It's really hard to get away from this, but... Paul, if you were like an ancient heretic, you could put the angel inside the star and say, well, the star is really an angel, really. But again, as we said, not the case, not the case. But very interesting that people used to believe that. Hey, thanks for the call, Paul, in Youngstown, Ohio. Wow. By the way, before we move on to something else, what we're going to talk about next, you're really going to love this. But quick sidebar here. I'm pretty excited about this. I'm not so sure producer Jim is excited about this, but he would rather this would happen to the St. Louis Cardinals, but there's a big rumor out there that the greatest baseball player on the planet, Shohei Otani, the MVP, I mean, a Ruthian player, even greater than Babe Ruth. I, 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 well, not, I'm not saying totally overall in terms of the body of work, but I think he's the greatest baseball player in terms of pure talent that's ever lived. This guy's incredible. Cy Young caliber pitcher, Ruthian hitter, greatest player on the planet. There's a rumor out there that Shohei Otani, who's a free agent, might be getting ready to sign with the Toronto Blue Jays. My Toronto Blue Jays. Can you imagine that? The official baseball team of the Kale Clark Show. And uh, I'm excited about this. Ken Rosenthal, no less a luminary than Ken Rosenthal. He of the bow ties uh, from MLB Network is reporting that they're in talks. And there's all this all this stuff floating around the ether. I, I, I'm, here, here's a clip, by the way. Speaking of stars... Maybe the brightest star in the baseball universe, Shohei Otani. Here is a clip from producer Jim. Check this out. Otani to center field. That's deep. Back goes Springer. At the wall. Gone. High game. So we're going to add another 400-plus feet on the home run distance. 38th of the year for Shohei Otani. Shohei, the money on a swing tied it up. <laughs> Yeah, he's going to be saying, Shohei, me the money. Um, whoever does sign this guy, there's rumors that the Cubs are in play as well and some other teams that have some cash to spend. I think it's worth the money, even if you have to sp- pay this guy way more than you would ever think to, to budget. I think it's going to be more than worth it, assuming he stays healthy. Think about all the merchandise he could sell. How much would you have to pay for a top-line pitcher? And I know he's kind of hurt in terms of pitching right now. A, a 
top-line starting pitcher and, and maybe the greatest hitter of all time <laughs> combined in one guy. I mean, I, I, I'm un... I mean, I, I think this would just be unbelievable. And I, I would love to see him mashing home runs at the Sky Dome. I refuse to call it the Rogers Center. But anyways... He's a bright star in the universe. Thought it's interesting. We're talking about stars, the star of Bethlehem. Him. But going to take a quick break right now because when we come back, when we come back, I'm going to absolutely blow your mind. It's going to be something that will be, I think, literally life changing for you. Going to give you some rules, not 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 the twelve rules for life that that Jordan Peterson talks about, but rules for something else that we do hopefully every day. But it will be life changing. I promise. And that's after the break. It's Kale Clark Show. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Be right back. Helping you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the show. 888-914-9149 is a toll-free line to call. Sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. Uh, give me a call and I'll try to get you on the air with your question. 888-914-9149. I promised you something life-changing. I, I don't want to... Overpromise, you know, or underdeliver. So I, I hope that you'll find it so. Uh, now, it, it, just a couple of days ago, I talked about whether Catholicism is in fact compatible with Stoicism. There's such a a, a trend, a fad, a, a craze about Stoicism in the culture today. Being a Stoic, I talked about what Stoicism really is and isn't. And yes, in fact, it is compatible with Catholicism. Maybe the best uh, proponent, the most well known, at least proponent of Stoicism in the culture right now, is the author Ryan Holiday. Uh, he re- he has a, a podcast called The Daily Stoic, uh, books about Stoicism, uh, The Daily Stoic. Uh, he also has books about fatherhood. He has one called The Daily Dad. Um, he has a, a blog post out right now about something really life-changing, I think, because we, we all hopefully are readers. And Ryan Holiday has actually read over 3,000 books in his life. And uh, I, I first heard about this through uh, another guy who talks about books on, on the X app on Twitter. Alex and Books is the handle, at Alex and Books. And Ryan Holiday has given, he's got a blog post about this on his website, 38 rules for reading that changed his life. The rules for reading that changed his life. And I think they'll change your life and my life as well. So I want to I know whether or not you've actually done any of these. So rule number one. When it comes to reading, do it all the time. Do it all the time. He says to bring a book with you everywhere. And he's he's read, he said, uh, Ryan Holiday said, I've read at the Grammys. <laughs> I guess it was boring, you know, some of the presentations. Um, Moments before going under for a surgery, I've read on planes, I've read on beaches, in cars, in cars while I waited for a tow truck. Take the pockets of time that you can get. Number two rule for reading, physical books only according to Ryan Holiday. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Are you sort of an analog person when it comes to books, or do you like digital books? Or do you kind of like both? Or what about audiobooks? I'm not an audiobook person at all. My wife is a total audiobook person. She's been listening to all kinds of audiobooks while she's going about her day. I can't do it. I can uh, I can read way faster than I can listen to stuff, number one. I, I do listen. I love listening to podcasts and stuff, especially uh, prayer podcasts, but um, when I'm walking the dog and stuff, but um, uh, Ryan Holiday says, and this is point number three, uh, 38 reading rules for life. Um, he says that there's something very special about the physical form. And he apparently read a book about this called Proust and the Squid. 
by Marianne Wolf. I don't know anything about that book, but I, I do think there's something about the analog experience of reading a book of you kind of what's interesting about a physical book is kind of you can it's easier to remember where something was like a section of the book oh yeah yeah it's kind of near the beginning and you kind of flip back to that page and and you kind of have this sensory extra sensory input that you get from touching the book that you don't get through a digital book but there are times obviously when digital books are super convenient like when you're in line at the doctor's office or when you're on the road that sort of thing i i kind of like both I, i prefer physical books I just don't like moving them around. I mean, last time I moved my library, man, it was a nightmare. Um, I don't have that big of a library, but but man, it, it was. I was like, I considered going all digital at that point. Um, okay, rule number four: hardcover over paperback. Rule number five: bring a pen. Reading is better if you're taking notes. I don't know about using pen, maybe pencil, because uh, you can at least erase it. I, I, I've read some crazy notes I put in books that I thought were like really deep thoughts. I don't know if you ever had this experience. I read it, like picked up the book years later. Man, it's like that's such a dumb idea. I can't believe I thought that. But hey, that was uh, that's who I was back then, I guess. And uh, I don't know if I'm any smarter now. Hopefully, a little bit. But number six, uh, Ryan Holiday says, keep a commonplace book. I have no idea really what a commonplace book. What he means by that is, but he says. As Seneca wrote, he's bringing in Stoicism again. As Seneca wrote, we should hunt out the helpful pieces of teaching and the spirited and noble-minded sayings which are capable of immediate practical application. Not far-fetched or archaic expressions or extravagant metaphors in figures of speech. Learn them so well that words become works, end of quote. I think what he means by these commonplace books are practical books, like where, where words can become works. Okay, you can actually apply what you're reading and learning. I think that's what he means by that. Rule number seven, rules for reading, err on the side of age. The classics are classics for a reason. Okay, good. good. I, I tend, you know, we, we, we sort of, we, we always want what's sort of hot, new, new release you know it's it's buzzworthy we, we you know the classics are kind of boring it was from a long time ago is that how you see it i don't know maybe you guys are classics readers triple eight nine one four nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine rule number eight beat them up beat up your books beat them up books are not precious things and, and he writes that as an author he loves it when people hand him a book to sign that has real miles put on it he says when people hand him a pristine copy of one of his books to sign and they tell me it's my favorite book, he says, uh, they're just flattering me. They haven't even read this thing. It's pretty obvious. It's obvious what my favorite books are because they're falling apart. Number nine, in every book you read, try to find your next book in the footnotes or bibliography of the book that you're reading. This is how you build a knowledge base in a subject. It's how you trace a subject back to its core. This is a really good point. Um, if you're reading books that have endnotes or footnotes or bibliographies, that's a really, really good source for extra material on the subject with what the author was drawing from. And uh, that's a, that's a, if you really want to do a deep dive, that, that's how you do it. You can really get some deep uh, subject knowledge about whatever it is that you're reading. Rule number 10. And I don't know what you guys think of these rules, whether they're helpful for your reading or not, but we should all be reading, right? Because study is part of our of our journey in the Catholic faith. We've got to study the faith, love the faith. Study essentially means reading for us. That's what it essentially means. Yeah, you can read, you can learn in an audio format as well through relevant radio podcasts, absolutely. Shows like The Faith Explains why we have them. But a reading is, is crucial. So number 10, rule number 10 from Ryan Holiday, 
uh, when you find an author that you love, read all of that author's books. And um, he uh, he gives an example of um, the author Cecil Woodham Smith, who wrote The Charge of the Light Brigade. And apparently um, that was a woman writing under a pen name. Maybe, didn't, you know, at that point, you know, that was what you had to do to get noticed. Um, and she she had also written a book about the about Florence Nightingale, biography of Florence Nightingale. So he, he's like, okay, I love The Charge of the Light Brigade. So I'm going to read this one that she wrote as well in Florence Nightingale. And he said that was the book that really blew his mind. And, and one of the books that he wrote was actually based on stuff that he read in the Florence Nightingale book. The book's called Courage is Calling. So, so, this, so when you find somebody that you really like, stick with this author. Keep reading it. Number 11, rule number 11. We'll, get, we'll just we, we'll do a few more of these. Um, Sam Bankman... Freed or Fried. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. You know that guy, right? The the FTX guy, the crypto scammer guy who just got sentenced. Um, really big scam, fooled a lot of people. Uh, I guess he is kind of fried now. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, whether it's Freed or Fried. But anyways, uh, he's he's metaphorically fried. Sam Bankman Fried. I'm just going to call him that. He he made a comment that every book could be a 900 word blog post. It really just needs to be a blog post. It doesn't need to be a book. Ryan Holiday said, that is preposterously stupid. The whole point of reading is to really understand something. So if all you're after is the gist, yeah, by all means, stick with blog posts. But the whole point of reading a book is to go deeper into, into that particular subject. And I, I agree with that 100%. It's not, it's not meant to be just a, a surfacey type thing. Number 12, if you see a book you want, just buy it. Don't worry about the price. Reading is not a luxury. It's not a luxury. It's not something for splurging. It's a necessity. So even if you get only one life-changing idea from a book, that's still pretty good return on investment. So even if you buy a book, man, it's, ah, it's too expensive. I, that happened to me the other day. I wanted this book, uh, I wanted this book on American history, uh, which is one of my little side passions. And I was like, ah, oh, geez, this is really expensive. I don't know if I should buy this. But I, I bought it and was glad I did. Don't regret it. Reading, is, even if you only get one life-changing idea from a book, it's still pretty good return on investment. And, he, and, he get, and then the next point, he gives a, a great illustration of this. Point number 13. He says, um, this might sound like a privileged thing to say, but Warren Buffett considered the foundation of his multi-billion dollar empire to be one book. When Warren Buffett was 19 years old, he bought a copy of The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. Now, we, we have no idea how much it cost at the time, but in the 1950s, when Warren Buffett was 19 years old, in the 1950s, a hardcover book typically was about $1.30 cover price. So Buffett always said that was the best investment that he ever made because that laid the foundation for Berkshire Hathaway. And now Warren Buffett is worth $108.7 billion, and he's given $37 billion away to charity. So that's a pretty good return on investment for a dollar and 30 cent book. That was the foundation of his empire. Now think about this from a spiritual perspective, from a Catholic perspective. This is why our spiritual reading is so important because even if you just get one idea from a book, from a spiritual book, it can totally change your life, transform your life. And this has happened to people who have not only found the Bible and, and, and read that, where it's just where, exactly where you should start. That's incredibly life-changing. We know that. But how many people... I remember reading the writings of, 
uh, Jacques Philippe, great spiritual writer, really helped me with a huge problem that I had. Just one little book that he wrote, one little idea in the book was huge for me. Uh, same sorts of things have happened to people who have discovered their, the writings of the saints, uh, The Way by St. Jose Maria Escriva. Just kind of people pick that up and just their lives are changed. So this can, it's, it's, it's always a great investment in time and in eternity. I love it. Let's take a quick phone call now. Let's go to Lisa in Brookfield, Wisconsin, Milwaukee area. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Hi. Hey. I'd like to tell you. I'd like to tell you guys, um, I really haven't found a uh, great decorating using Kindles and laptops and iPads. I, I can't. I can't decorate with hmm. those. And I love a house that uses books for beauty. Mm. Mm. You love it. At yeah, any Martha Stewart or anyone, we use the books to decorate with. Yeah, it's that, amazing. Uh, yeah, it's I think that's a great read. idea. That, that's a great idea, Lisa. Yeah, and hopefully we read all the books on ourselves, or at least uh, have read most of them. Um, yeah, I, I love that too. I love the idea of bookshelves as as decor. I just think it looks amazing, um, and uh, I, I just I just really 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 like that. Um, great point. Great point. You can't do that with Kindle books. You can't decorate your home with Kindle books. That's that's for sure. Um, so I, I I think that's um that's really crucial. And 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 uh, another thing that um, that Ryan Holiday says is don't don't just read the books. Reread them. Reread them. Uh, and, and speaking of the Stoics, he said there's a great line from the Stoic philosophers. They used to say that we never step in the same river twice. The books don't change, but you do change. That's a great point. That's a great point because stuff hits you differently when you're older. And when, you, when you're going through stuff, you can go back to the same book and it can hit you in a completely different way. So that's a, that's a great th- reason to go back to the classics, go back to the standbys again and again and again. Uh, another point that he makes, point number 16, uh, I wish I could share them all. We're going to run out of time, but... Speed reading is a scam, he said. You can't speed read. It's you can't just surface surface speed read. No, you got to spend time. You, you got to actually do it. And here's oh one last one. I can't I can't resist this one. He said, if a book stinks, stop reading it. Life is too short to read books that you don't enjoy reading. He said the best readers actually quit a lot of books. So here's a rule of thumb: if you're 30 years old, he says, let's say. Um, it's 100 pages minus your age. That's the rule. So if, if you're 30 years old, if a book hasn't captivated you by page number 70, stop it. And, and that obviously decreases the older you get. So if you're 50, um, it's 100 minus 50. So it's only 50 pages. And if, if it doesn't grab you, get rid of it. Drop it. Move on to something else. Because the older you get, the less time you have to, to for crap. You know, you just don't have time. So only read the good books. I appreciate that one too. All right, let's go to Jose in San Benito, Texas. Good to have you back, Jose. Thank you, Kel. Kel, a quick question. Um, does a thousand years, you know, a millennia, have any meaning in the Bible? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's a really good question, Jose. A thousand years, yeah. And in the book of Revelation, there's all this talk of the thousand year. People talk about the millennial reign of Christ. What does that really mean? Uh, I talked about this a lot uh, during the Revelation series and the Faith Explained program. But here, here's a good example of a thousand years, what, where this can come into play. You know how Jehovah's Witnesses talk about there's only 144,000 people in heaven? That's a misunderstanding of a text from Revelation. Where does this number come from, the 144,000? That doesn't mean there's only literally 144,000 people in heaven. 
Where that number comes from is 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 tribes of Israel times the 12 apostles of the church times 1,000. That gives you 144,000. So it's a perfect number. So 1,000 is a number of completeness. So the complete number of the people of God. That's what it really means. It means completeness. And that's a complete episode. That's a wrap of the Kale Clark Show for today. Hey, if you missed any of it, grab the podcast. Keep it locked into Relevant Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Jim Shaper produced Patrick Alog and Miranda Siniceros took your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.